Well, good morning. My name is Josh, and uh, it's a, a privilege to be here with you. Um, it's uh, my last sermon here at Redemption City, so it makes it a, a profound uh, honor and, and privilege to, uh, to, be, to be here one, one last time. Uh, this has been such a sweet place to preach, uh, such a sweet place to, uh, I think God kind of used you uh, and the church family here to um, uh, kind of help me fall back in love uh, with the joy of preaching and what, what it means to open the word uh, for people in a, in a church setting. So very thankful uh, for all that. Um, the uh, uh, Thankful to Pastor Mike letting me preach and just doing the uh, preaching cohorts and all that stuff. Philly really is a place where I've grown as a preacher, been able to uh, get learn things and, and develop skills that I'll take uh, for the rest of my life for as long as... Um, as God lets me preach, um, I was I kind of had a sense that this was going to happen, and my iPad is acting up, so I need to find my sermon real quick. Uh, it is not uh, not where I left it, so please please hang tight. Oh, this is really awkward, guys. This has never happened in all my in all my preaching. It was there when I put it there, and now it's gone. The internet is down, so that's the uh, the the issue here. All right. Well, here we go. Uh, Maybe the internet will come back at some point, and I'll pull it up. But uh, we could try that. Yes. Yeah, James. <laughs> wow, this is awesome. Thanks, guys. Hooray! Wow, James saved me from like my worst nightmare. That is, <laughs> has never happened. I am so sorry, guys. Uh, here we are, last sermon ever, and going out with a bang. <laughs> well, it was July 1789 in Paris, France, and there had been years of turmoil. There had been years and years of bad crops. And France was deep in debt and had started taxing uh, the poor, the, the, the working class people oppressively because the nobility had this party habit where they would throw lavish, extravagant uh, parties night after night. And so you had this huge dichotomy, the poor were barely surviving, getting taxed, and the, uh, uh, the, the rich were continuing to party. Also at the time, uh, there was a man named Jean-Paul Marat. I think I have a picture of him. Super good-looking dude. He started this uh, social media platform called A Newspaper. And it, uh, 
it was titled A Friend of the People, which might sound like something that Mr. Rogers would write for, but it, it actually uh, went viral using fear and outrage to stir people up, uh, stir people up against the king and the nobility, you know, saying, like, they're out to kill everyone, you got to get them first. And here's a, here's a quote from some of John Paul Marat's advice. Five or six hundred heads cut off would have assured your repose, freedom, and happiness. And though at the time the, the working class people had formed a government called the National Assembly, uh, eventually uh, it, it came to a, the fervor came to a head when, when folks stormed a military hospital to get guns, to uh, get a bunch of weapons. However, there happened to be no um, military or no gunpowder at the hospital. So then they went to a prison called the Bastille, and they demanded that the governor of the Bastille the Bastille, the Marquis de Lunay, hand over gunpowder. He did not. And so they stormed the Bastille, ended up cutting off de Lunay's head. I don't have a picture of that. I wanted to put one in there, but I, I, I held back. Uh, they, they cut off his head, and they stuck his head on a pole and lifted up and marched around Paris. The mob got back to the National Assembly, which again, was the governing body that was like trying to work with the powers that be to create more equality and justice. And there was this moment that determined the nature of the French Revolution for decades. Would the National Assembly, this, this governing body of, of kind of new politicians, would they condemn the violence or celebrate it? And you can kind of guess based on Marat's advice, that they were jacked on the violence and putting heads on poles and lifting them into the air became a trademark of the French Revolution because there were lots of heads rolling around due to a new invention called the guillotine. And France entered into what historians call the reign of terror. When you look at revolutions throughout human history, there's almost always a, a decisive act of violence. In the murder of the Marquis de Lunay, was the decisive act of violence of the French Revolution. Thomas Jefferson, who was involved in the American Revolution, summarized it like this. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure. The French Revolution is is an example of just the complicated nature of revolutions because they often start in response to legitimate evil. You know, there's oppression happening. Things are not the way they should be. It just can't be sustained, uh, and it needs to be confronted. Like Marie Antoinette, who, who was queen uh, at the line, she has that famous line, uh, let them eat cake. That was when thousands of women who were seeing their children starve stormed her Versailles palace, demanding bread. It was just ridiculous indulgence and selfishness that was resulting in the starvation of children. Like, we got to do something. But then revolutions are almost always violence. They they respond to oppression and often end up enacting oppression. Or you you have the raging mob. It's just messy and complicated. And I go into all this revolution talk because that is what our sermon text is all about. This story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people is loaded with revolutionary imagery and language. If you grew up in the church, this is a great flannel board story from Sunday school. Like it's Jesus teaching people the gospel and then having a picnic afterwards, uh, getting some free food. And it is a beautiful story, but there's just a lot more going on in, going on in it. 
The first thing we should point out is the thing we've pointed out for pretty much every sermon so far in this series, that Mark is showing us who Jesus is. And here at the first half of the Gospel of Mark, uh, the, the point is Jesus is king. He is the king. Here in this story, Mark is not primarily showing us the miracle of like how to get free food, but showing us how people are beginning to respond to Jesus as king and his kingship. And, and he's beginning to unpack the nature of Jesus' revolution, the nature or character of Jesus' kingdom. We see today that Jesus is a revolutionary, but he's a revolutionary like no other revolutionary the world has seen. And so as we, I want to walk through the story and look at two questions. The first one is, what is the nature of Jesus' revolution? What is it like? How does it work? What's the general ethos of what Jesus is doing? And the second question is, what is it like to be part of Jesus' revolution? To be Jesus' disciple and participate in the revolution. The disciples have been pretty quiet up until now, like they were called, and then they're just kind of around. They got sent out a little bit earlier to do some things, but they, they, haven't, they, they haven't done a ton. They've just watched Jesus as he calms storms and casts out demons and heals people. And this story shows us, kind of for the first time, the, the disciples directly participating in Jesus' ministry. And so if you identify as a disciple of Jesus, uh, we, can, we can look come to this text and ask, what is it like to be a committed member of Jesus' revolution, his new world order that he has come to establish on the earth? A revolution that continues today and a revolution in which you and I get to participate in. First, a little historical context of this story is Israel is ripe for revolution. Israel, the country in Jesus' day and age, is under Roman occupation, which was very oppressive. Some historians estimate that Roman taxes on Jews would have been 80 to 90 percent. Like people were probably losing land that had been in their family for generations because they couldn't pay this oppressive tax that was funding an army that was oppressing them. When Jesus was radical in this, like when, when he says things like, if someone forces you to go with them a mile, go with them too. Some commentators think that he's referring to the practice of the Roman army of grabbing anybody walking by and making them carry stuff like a donkey for them for at least a mile. Jesus is saying, go with them two miles. It's crazy. And then let's look at what comes right before our story here, going back a couple verses to what... Mark preached about last week. In verse 27 of chapter 6, it says, And immediately the king, this is Herod, sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to a girl, and the girl gave it to her mother's. When the disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So John the Baptist, a Jewish teacher, was unjustly imprisoned by King Herod, a Roman ruler, and then was beheaded by that same Roman ruler for a party favor because King Herod's stepdaughter did an erotic dance and he didn't want to lose face. It is senseless evil by the ruling class and would have naturally made Israel very angry. And on top of that, for years, Israel has been looking at the prophecies of the Messiah, expecting him to come and overthrow the Roman oppression. And so now that Jesus is on the scene, fulfilling prophecies, healing the blind and the lame, raising the dead, it's not hard to imagine where 
where people's minds are at when they consider Jesus. They're thinking, this is it. It's happening. The revolution is beginning. Look at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now when many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So Jesus got the devastating news that John the Baptist, who was his cousin or second cousin, was killed in an awful, senseless way. Jesus' disciples are coming back from a missionary journey, intense season of ministry. And the next move is to get away and rest. In response to sadness, Jesus withdraws to be with God. In response to a busy season of ministry, the response is to rest. It's just the way of Jesus. We see life lived in this rhythm of engagement, ministry, and then rest, stopping to embrace emotions, to let our souls catch up with our bodies. The rhythms of engagement and retreat uh, are primary patterns of Jesus' lifestyle. And and part of of the nature of Jesus' revolution and part of what what it means to be a part of it is that we rest, we engage, and we rest. There was a a culture in uh, the church or churches a decade or so ago where uh, instead of having men's retreats, we would have men's advances. Why? Because real men never retreat. And uh, I told told Andrew Benzing about this uh, a couple weeks ago, and he was like, oh, dear, (laughs) which I thought was... (laughs) I thought it was a funny comment, but oh dear is right. Like it didn't end super well uh, for that stream of church. Uh, and it's because it's just not the way of Jesus. Jesus, like, was he not a real man because he retreated to the wilderness to be quiet and still and rest with his father? And if you know me at all, you know I want to spend the rest of the sermon talking about this. But we have a revolution, so we, we have to keep going. So let me just ask one question. Considering yourself... Are you more likely to overdo it on the engagement or the retreat? Are you, like me, susceptible to the more, better, faster, stronger, onward and upward, and need to intentionally follow Jesus into the quiet, desolate place before your Father? Or are you more inclined to retreat, cozy, comfort is the default, hoarding time and energy, resources, your words, I need to take courage and follow Jesus into engagement. Jesus comes for all of us. Whatever our bent, he doesn't allow us to stay there. He calls us into this holistic way of being. Now, when it says many were coming and going, a lot of commentators see that language uh, as, as kind of revolutionary language. Like you imagine like the hubbub surrounding like a, a revolutionary outpost, people coming and going, clandestine activity, suspicious movement afoot. And so they leave, they go away. And I think it's, it's a very significant contrast that this pattern of Jesus going away to rest in the presence of his father takes him to the wilderness. Because historically and geographically, this remote region of Galilee was the place that revolutionaries had been hiding out for generations. Like even since before the, the Romans took over, you can see revolutions in Israel beginning in this region. So Jesus is going to the seedbed of revolutionary fervor in order to rest in his Father's love. 
And again, just unpacking some of the, the little revolutionary uh, signposts here. In, in Mark's gospel, he uses a word translated crowd a lot. He refers to the crowd a lot. And it's a general word in Greek that means just a mass of people. But here the word is different. Like when he talks about crowd and many people, it, it's, it, you can easily infer that it's specifically targeting men. And, then, you know, and of course it ends in verse 44 saying there were 5,000 men. And it might be true what you know you might you hear a lot around this passage that they only counted men because it's a patriarchal society and they're really women and children. So the miracle is even more amazing because there's like twenty thousand people that were full, and maybe that's true. Like, it, it, but it does seem like the text supports uh, or at least suggests that this is a group of predominantly men because of this revolutionary fervor. They were the ones who were out there ready to take action angry about John the Baptist, sick of paying taxes, wanting to fight. And so they were quick to see Jesus taking a boat out to the place where revolutions begin and running out there to be a part of overthrowing Rome and putting a new king in power. I think this becomes even more clear when you compare it to the Gospel of John's account of this miracle. In John chapter 6, verse 15, it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So there's just a lot of revolutionary energy going on here. And then we get to begin to see the uh, counterintuitive nature of Jesus' revolution in verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Compassion and teaching are the nature of Jesus' revolution. When it says that they were like sheep without a shepherd, uh, it's a, it, we, we can have this sweet pastoral image of Jesus with a little lamb. But in Jewish tradition, the, the shepherd of the sheep was a common figure of speech uh, in the Old Testament for a leader of Israel, like Moses, or even more often of a Joshua-like military hero who would muster Israel's forces for war. It's a metaphor of military leadership and victory. And, and Jesus' way of leading is compassion. He sees this whole mass of men without direction, without a leader, angry, Hurting, confused, and he uses the opportunity to what? To teach them. His compassion moves him towards them to teach. Now, to this day, there are revolutionaries in remote places of the Middle East gathering angry, disgruntled men. What do we often call them? Terrorists. And when a group of lost, angry men gather around a leader in the desert, what is typically the first thing that happens? Weapons training. They're given guns and prepared to fight. But here we see that in Jesus' revolution, it flows from compassion, and the compassion is expressed in teaching the good news of the kingdom of God, breaking into the world. Jesus' revolution is not first and foremost about getting to work. It's about coming home to the reality of who he is what God is doing in the world, what that means for us, how we are to respond to this new world order. So often we come to Jesus all jacked up, hurting, wanting wanting one thing, and Jesus in his compassion flips the scripts, redefines our reality, 
We come to Jesus because we're devastated about a breakup or overwhelmed by parenting or heartbroken in our marriage, and he changes the question. Maybe you're trying to quench your thirst by drinking salt water. Maybe it's not your boyfriend or your child who's the problem. Maybe it's your understanding of reality. Verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? So here we start to see the attention of the story shift to the disciples, and we get a taste of what it's like to be a part of Jesus' revolution. The story shifting from the angry men to his disciples, and it just kind of slays me that the disciples view themselves as like the, the logistics coordinator. Like they're worried about food. I, I just get the picture of Jesus like present in the moment to this mob of men, filled with love for them, teaching, answering questions, compassionately listening to their rants, and responding with you know, brilliant, piercing questions that only Jesus can do. And all the while, the sun's getting lower and lower in the sky. And, and then remember the context, right? Why did, why did Jesus and his disciples come here in the first place? Because they had, they had no leisure even to eat. So they were hungry, presumably, before they even got into the boat. And here we are on the other side of the, other side of the lake after a whole day of teaching. And, he, and there's this mob. And I would imagine if they needed a place to eat, they probably brought a little bit of food. or some, They had some idea of how to get food. And the disciples were like, I'm not sharing. Send them away. Like, the disciples are, are more, more, more than in the zone of hangry. And they're like, I don't wanna, I'm going to eat now. So you send these guys away because I don't want to eat in front of them, and I'm not sharing. And what does Jesus say? You give them something to eat. And they're flabbergasted. How, what, how in the world? We don't have the resources. We don't have enough money. It's like, Jesus, we don't have 20 grand to like run to Costco really quick. Jesus is inviting his disciples to follow him into his compassion for the lost and angry mob, which seems like a Jesus thing to do, but we need to note that by doing so, this invitation from Jesus to the disciples to participate in compassion overwhelms them, scares them, confuses them. Following Jesus, being a part of his revolution, means that we will be invited into radical compassion and that it will overwhelm us and make us flabbergasted. Make, it, make us feel like there's, there's no way that I can do this. I feel stretched beyond what I can handle. That, I think we see in Scripture, that's, a, that's baseline. That's a, a normal reality for the life of a Jesus follower. In fact, if you don't feel flabbergasted on the regular as you follow Jesus, you, you ask yourself some serious questions about to what degree you're, you're obeying Jesus' invitations. We could talk about foster care, caring for hurt kids in a broken system will overwhelm you. Or we could be talking about trying to love your spouse the way Jesus describes in Scripture, calls us to. It will stretch and break us down. Maybe for you, it's your neighbors or coworkers or a family member. But we just let Scripture define normal for you. Following Jesus is not this up and to the right neat and tidy, always in control kind of life that we can really idolize here in West Michigan. Look at verse 38. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. 
And when they found out, they said five and two fish. Jesus doesn't need to ask questions. <laughs> so when he asks questions, he's teaching. He's trying to reveal something in, to the person he's speaking to. And this is probably my favorite Jesus question. How many loaves do you have? He responds to all their practical concerns. Like, what? How could we go there? We don't have enough money. What, what do you have? The disciples are focused on what they don't have. They don't have all this money or food. It's impossible. And Jesus says, what do you have? Go and see. He responds to the flabbergastedness with a simple question of fact. What is? What, what do you have? And tells them to go and see. Like practically go and take inventory. When we are focused on what we don't have, we can't see what we do have. And part of following Jesus, I think, is cultivating a way of being where we're fully present to our reality. And we have the instinct to look at what is. The givens of the situation. We look at them honestly because we know that God's in control and that the the givens are uh, part of his plan. If we don't shut down options or discredit resources prematurely. Because if we're honest, like if I was the disciple, I would probably think this was a silly question. A pointless thing to consider. Like, I don't need to go and see Jesus. I know it's not enough. Like, so, so what if we have, uh, so we have a little bit? It's not enough. But we take inventory of what we have, what God has given us, because Jesus' revolution is based on him, who he is. And part of being... The experience of being a part of his revolution is that we're honest about what we do have and we, we offer it up to our king in faith. Jesus will use what little we have. We offer it up to God because we believe that God can do anything. And I think it shows us something really important about the way Jesus operates and that he chooses to start with what the disciples have. Like he could have done the Harry Potter thing, the Albus Dumbledore, you know, just like wave the hand and... Magic elves make food appear for all these people. But instead, he wanted the disciples to have this experience of taking, taking what, what they have and offering it up. And he wants to teach his disciples through doing. And that's true for us. Jesus will teach and grow us through doing, through action, through participating in his revolution. Verse 39. Then he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now, bread is a very important part of the story. Uh, in our culture, we think of bread, what do we think of? Carbs or, or gluten. Is it gluten-free or sprouted grains, sourdough starters? Uh, but in Jesus' day and age, bread was a symbol for life. Like, there wasn't a big diet industry back in Jesus' day and age because there wasn't, like, super abundance. What wasn't something to resist. But instead, life was built around trying to get enough. Bread was life. And here we see in Jesus' revolution that he has the words of life in his teaching. And then in his compassion, he does this miracle to feed their bodies. Miraculously multiplied bread. In one of the great I am statements in the Gospel of John, Jesus says it even more clearly in John 6.35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
Jesus' revolution satisfies our soul. When we think about the angry, scared, hurting, lost mob of men wanting to overthrow Roman rule, we see their hungry souls, and we can picture ourselves there, hurt and angry and confused. And Jesus offers his word to us, his teaching, his true food. Jesus doesn't, Jesus juke the mob, he kindly teaches them and literally feeds them. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture, image of the kingdom of God. It's, it's an image of order. This unruly mob now sitting down in manageable groups. It's an it's a image of satisfaction. Like Mark makes it clear, all ate and were satisfied. And abundance, there were 12 baskets left over. Jesus' revolution is beautiful. It's one of order, satisfaction, and abundance because it's based on the God of the universe. Now, Jesus has his disciples serve the, serve the people. We see Jesus' followers involved in his compassion, brought in in spite of their, their overwhelmed confusion, their, their lack of confidence in Jesus. And this is a beautiful picture of, of what it means to be a part of uh, of Jesus' revolution is that there's this intrinsic grace. There's the same grace, you know, that, or it, it's the kind of grace that I would show Johnny or Ruby when they want to help me do something around the house. It's because I love them and want to see them grow that I bring them in, even though it makes it harder and takes longer. And I got to explain things more and answer all the questions. Jesus delights to bring his friends, his people, into his work. Jesus looks at you, looks at me in love and says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Learn from me, take my yoke upon me. And the vision here is that by being with Jesus, depending on him, relating to him, we become like him in his compassion, his courage, his generosity, because we, we become like him in living out what it means to be a child of the God of the universe who knows no lack and flows, it sends his love into us. I've been doing some reading on the classic uh, virtue, virtues and vices that you can find you know, throughout uh, the last millennia or so. Uh, you, you see them in Aristotle, the Desert Fathers, and I stumbled across this interesting vice. It's pusillanimity, kind of a mouthful, pusillanimity, uh, which means smallness of soul. I'd never heard this term before, but I think it's pretty insightful. According to Thomas Aquinas, a uh, theologian from the 13th century said this vice plays out when people shrink back from all that God has for them, shrink back from what God has called them to be and to do. When the, the pain or difficulty of stretching ourselves to follow Jesus makes us cringe, and we just say, I just can't do it. And the sneakiness of this vice is that it can often hide under false humility or reasonable caution or deference to others, but at its root, pusillanimity, it's a mouthful, shouldn't have put that in the manuscript so many times, comes into our lives when we're focusing on our own puny powers, when our eyes are on ourselves and not God, all the ways that we could fail, and so we tap out of God's work or just knock it down some notches to make it more manageable where we can do it even if God doesn't show up. The disciples were showing pusillanimity. There it is again in this story. They were looking at an overwhelming situation and wanting to shut it down. Send them away. Wrap it up. Start again tomorrow. They had this smallness of soul. 
which I think is interesting, resulted in them telling Jesus what to do. Never a good place to be. But on some level, they weren't wrong. Like, on their own, yeah, they had no options to feed all the people. We make a great mess of ourselves on our own. But if you have said yes to Jesus' revolution, then you are not on your own. You're joining his revolution under the reality of the superabundance of God. The very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the Bible tells us, lives inside of you, inside of your body. And so the antidote to pusillanimity is to not tell Jesus what to do, but to ask him, how? Fill me. What would you have me do? I'm scared. Maybe some of us here today are having something come to mind that Jesus has been calling you to do for a while. You feel Jesus is asking you to step into and you're avoiding and resisting uh, because of smallness of soul, that how it might hurt you financially or all the reasonable reasons why you should be cautious or it will make life harder and you need to stop telling Jesus no and, and all the reasons why and instead ask him how. Maybe some of us, Jesus might be calling you to take courage and show up to the scary work in your lives that God's given you in your marriage, in your parenting, in dealing with your past. There's all kinds of reasons why there's just parts of our hearts, the emotions that we just need to lock away. Because, you know, like, you know how many people depend on me right now? Like, I, I can't be a mess right now. How many people are looking to me to have it all together? And all those fears... We can get alone with Jesus and pour out your heart to him and take stock of what you have. What you, what you have is a relationship with the, the God who loves you. And then in your own strength, you offer whatever pathetic, limited resource that you have to show up to your spouse and say, I'm sorry, I love you. How can we make this better? To show up to a coworker and said, I've been very cold to you but I would, like to, I would like to show kindness to you. We just offer up little simple things and see what God might do. Create space to be with your king, the leader of the revolution of compassion, and let him be compassionate to you and empower you to participate. Now this revolution of compassion in love, uh, with this revolution of abundance and satisfaction is not without its own decisive act of violence. Just like the beheading of the Marquis de Delaunay Jesus' revolution has violence in it. And uh, what, what I loved about this passage is that Mark is, is setting us up for it. Look back at verse 41 of our passage. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. The verse has two, the two verbs there, blessing and breaking. Jesus blessed the loaves and broke is the same language that Mark uses later in chapter 14 at the Last Supper, where it says, as they were eating, he, Jesus, took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, take, this is my body. And then right after that, we see blood nourishing the, the tree of liberty, as Thomas Jefferson said, when Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it, And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus' revolution is founded on and inspired by violence. The cross is the ultimate tree of liberty, of freedom, nourished by the blood of the king. 
And this violence is not done by the revolutionary leader. It is violence done to the revolutionary leader. Jesus' revolution of compassion is founded on his cross. His whole body was put on a pole and lifted into the air. And when Jesus was on the cross, he blessed the very people killing him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then he broke. His body was literally broken. Blood was poured out for many. So as we prepare to come forward to participate in the Lord's Supper, let us behold our revolutionary king, showing his compassion towards you and me by taking our place on the cross, sacrificing himself, letting himself be broken so we could be whole and satisfied. And Jesus' revolution, we believe, will ultimately win because unlike pretty much every other revolution that fights evil and oppression with evil and oppression, Jesus absorbs evil and oppression into his very body and responds to violence with blessing and breaking. And so we see Jesus as our substitute, absorbing evil and our evil and the evil done against us. And we see Jesus as our revolutionary king, our example as his followers. We follow him in blessing those around us by allowing ourselves to be stretched and broken in our efforts to show compassion. I'm going to pray here in a minute. The band will come up while I pray. And our tradition here uh, for the Lord's Supper is to go around, uh, go out the outside of the aisles, come and you can grab a packet on the tables in the corners or break off a piece of the cracker and dip it in the wine. If you're here today and you've not said yes to Jesus' invitation uh, to the revolution. You never embraced and believed in what he has done for you. Then I invite you to stay seated. And, and instead of, of coming forward to take the cracker and the wine, consider will you come to him, the broken and bleeding king who gave himself as bread for your soul? And for those of you who are following Jesus, will you follow your king to the cross, to your own cross, and your, allow your own life to be broken, your own blood shed to point people to the freedom they can have in Jesus? Let me pray. Oh, Father, we praise you for the beauty of our king, the beauty of his revolution, with abundance, with compassion, with satisfaction. Father, we we just lift up all our uh, flabbergastedness, all our our overwhelmed uh, experiences, all the ways life feels impossible to us, and ask that you would meet us here. Father, for those of us who, who don't yet know you, who have not said yes to Jesus' revolution, I pray that you would uh, draw them, show them Jesus, show them a beautiful new reality he's come to uh, put into place and the, and the work he did on the cross to provide a way for them in. And Father, I pray that we would be a people marked by the cross, that we would see our king on the cross, that we would follow him to our own crosses, uh, that we would love people uh, to the point of breaking and bleeding, so they might know uh, the goodness of knowing you. We know that that is where our joy lies, and that's where your glory is found. In Jesus' name, amen.